0: Welcome to Resilient Entrepreneurs, the podcast where we speak with business owners and entrepreneurs from around the world and from all walks of life in the hopes that something you hear will leave your business a little richer. We're your co-hosts, Vicky and Laura from 241 Branding, supporting entrepreneurs as they launch their business to market. It's our favorite thing to do and we're good at it. Well, it's our favorite thing to do aside from chatting with our fascinating guests on this show. And if listening to the show is a highlight of your week, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening or watching on right now, and you'll be notified of the next great episode. Today, we're chatting with award-winning entrepreneur, Meg Gleef-Bowen, CEO and owner of Tri International Inc., a US-based chemical distributor, which, by the way, is one of the largest certified women-owned suppliers in North America. She's also the owner and CEO of a multinational corporation, Blend of America a chemical blending and tolling facility. We're going to chat with Meg about her journey. It's not all been smooth sailing, of course, and why Meg believes that now is always the best time to take the first step forward. Meg, a very warm welcome to Resilient Entrepreneurs.
1: Thank you both for having me. I'm I'm just delighted to be here. Oh, thank you. We appreciate
2: that. And we're super excited for this conversation. And we love talking to entrepreneurs like you. And We love talking about your journey, because yours sounds like a really interesting one. But let's start back in the early days. Can you tell me, were you a bit of an entrepreneurial child? Has it always been in your blood?
1: It has, probably, in strange ways. I always think that the first moniker of being an entrepreneur is being somebody who is creative and creatively inclined. And I was, not in traditional ways. I wouldn't call myself an artist or anything like that, but I always liked seeing how Different creative ways could come together to solve problems and and create solutions. And in fact, I found myself at times fixated on the need to um, like there has to be a better way. Is sort of the mindset I had. Perhaps even before I had those words as a young person, I really was mindful of the fact that I felt like sometimes things could be done better. And I think that most entrepreneurs probably start when they really think about it from, from that place. And in fact, it becomes the impetus for a lot of people's business.
0: Definitely problem solving. That it has to be the number one driver of why entrepreneurs do what we do.
1: Absolutely.
2: So, so what problem did you solve
1: first? It's really interesting. I think that I look back at my life and I, I look at my childhood. So I was raised in poverty, first of all. And like a lot of the people, frankly, around me, in the, I, was, I grew up in a small rural community in the middle of the country, and a lot of people had a lot of lack and a lot of need. And what sort of ran parallel to that was also some of the things that we know go along with that, a lot of strife in households and a lot of difficulty. And in, and in my case, that was certainly true. And a lot of um, just sad and, and sometimes traumatic experiences. So I would say that when you are in a place where you can't always have everything that is available to solve a problem, you do become a creature of of ingenuity. And I would say that even in the way that we played, maybe we couldn't afford like the latest and greatest toys or the latest and greatest gadgets or things that other people had. But we were, first of all, innovators of fun and of just the way that we recreated. My brother and I were really big at finding our way to fun and to creation and to building things with what we had. And at the time, you know, even a middle school kid, I would have told you that that was super unfair and depressing. Now I look at that, and I think that one of my greatest skills as an entrepreneur is that I know how to do basically anything with very little. I very rarely find myself in the corner of a room and can't figure out how to get out. Uh, as a figure of speech,
0: is that a mindset shift or what is it that turns that around for you?
1: I think it is a mindset. I think it's also a person set, a body set. You guys talk about resiliency and, and things like that, and sort of having to find your way through uh, a difficult situation or find a, a solution for a problem that you might not have all the resources to solve is inherently resilient isn't it and it is a mindset but it's also a steeper than that for me i feel like it is a critical component of the fabric of my being of who i am and i think this because i'm very often confronted with people who can't do it if it was only a mindset thing i think we could train ourselves to be resilient or resourceful or people who fundamentally just say, I'm not going to give up. I will find a solution to this problem. I have to do it. It's going to happen. That is what's happening. And I don't see that quality every place that I go. And so I I think that if it was super easily developed by just reciting certain things in your mind and and through repetitive mantra, like I think more people would probably do it. So I think there is something to be said in your mind, but I think there's also something to be said for utilizing our experiences in life, even the difficult ones, to realize how they, even though in the moment they look terrible, but they have essentially equipped us with skills that we would not have been able to gather otherwise, and then to employ them and deploy them as resources. I think that's more than just a mindset.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree. And loads of entrepreneurs that we talk to have very similar stories. And often come from very similar backgrounds. It's sort of that grit that you get from the challenges that you face along the way, especially I think as a young person, like the younger you are, the more you deal with, the more resilience you build at a young age, it becomes such a part of exactly who you are. And and I think that's such an advantage for an entrepreneur. So if you're out there struggling, like please know, like you can use it. It's a power, you know, it empowers you later. And no matter how hard it is in the moment, it always comes back to give you something, whether a lesson or fail fast, like there's a lot of people that talk about failing fast. So what do you think about failure? Because all of us through our journey in entrepreneurship face a lot of failure. So what's your mindset around that?
1: I never like failure when it's happening, but I love it in the rear view mirror. And I'm probably not alone in that. And it's one thing to be going through a moment of failure, whether it's personal failure, business failure, relationship failure all of that when you're in that it's kind of like hey save me the platitudes about how this is going to serve me later because it just i'm not interested in hearing that and i certainly wasn't i've been through some moments of epic failure some of which were my fault those are the worst Mm -hmm. some of which were not some of which were just the circumstances that life threw at me i hated every moment of every single one of them if i'm totally honest but somebody told me once, I was in a really, really incredibly low point in my life. I was uh, halfway through law school when my first wife was diagnosed with cancer, and her cancer ended up being terminal. And it was an awful ride. It was a terrible journey through her, her illness, and it was devastating when she died. And days after her death, somebody to said to me, where there is ruin, there is always treasure. And i can't tell you how pissed i was hearing that how insensitive how terrible but now i flash forward well over a decade later and i can tell you every day i'm aware more and more and more of the treasure that came out of that ruin that's a failure that moment is a failure it's not my fault there there were a lot of things that i did in response to that there were a lot of ways that i dealt with it that are my fault but it's a failure of our primary relationship and of the, of my understanding of the fairness of the world and it landed on me in such a way that that could have left me really probably justified in just laying in that failure and saying all right i'm done there's no point in putting myself back out there again there's no point in being vulnerable to to love to life to the risk that that being in the world has but I'm glad I didn't do that. And I'm glad that I've positioned myself to be a person that does look now, not, not right in the moment, but now for the treasure that did come from that ruin. Because it was really good in so many ways. I know that sounds crazy, but toughened me and it, um, and it softened me at the same time in really special ways.
0: It's so beautiful, Meg. And yeah, thank you for sharing that deeply personal story. We appreciate it. So just, I guess, to follow on from that is, uh, do you think people get stuck after failure? Let me ask you why you think people might get stuck after failure and not do what you did by going forward?
1: Well, I want to be really clear that initially I got stuck. And if there's anybody who's listening right now that's either been stuck or is currently stuck, that's okay. I always say that where you are is, is just a perfect place, and you, you have to acknowledge the, the okayness of stuck. Sometimes stuck is part of the process. I dealt with that through alcohol addiction and other avoiding coping mechanisms. I didn't write that book, okay? I'm not the first person to invent that for dealing with hard things. And so what that means for being stuck is that in that failure and in that devastation, refusing to deal with something or, or dealing with it inappropriately is stuck. But then when you come to the moment where you say, I, I don't think I want to live like this anymore, that moment is a miracle, but then it's a secondary failure because then you realize that what you're cleaning up is in large part your fault. And this is what I mean. Like some failures we have, we have no one to blame but ourselves. It would have been very easy for me to look at my life and say, this happened to me. I had no choice. I'm going to stay in this stuck place. And, and sort of to your, your question and your point, Vicki, like that feels easy and comforting sometimes, especially when we don't know our way out. I think that's why people get stuck most often is that we don't know how to get out and we don't know how to ask for help. And so it's a lot easier to stay stuck, which is then again, made more difficult when you do want to get out and you realize that part of getting out means that you have to acknowledge another set of failures that belong to you. And so that's hard. I think people avoid that. And I think that's why they stay stuck. I don't judge that because I've been there. I I know what that feels like to do that, but I will say that life is far more rewarding um, if you can move through that, but it's hard. It really is.
0: What was your point, your pivot point, for want of a better word?
1: I had a lot of pivot points. The first thing I always tell people is that I am a person, for better or for worse, that has a really keen sense of internal awareness. I began to realize that the woman that I was, what I was doing, how I was acting, because we are in a sense, what we do, right? That woman did not match who I knew I could be. And if I can go deep here, who I actually was, even under the, the layers of action and things like that. That's a real pivot point. That doesn't mean that I did anything with it right away. And it doesn't mean that I responded to it well. But I had an awareness. I had that initial spark of this woman in her current behavior, in her current avoidance of life's trials, is not going to stay. She can't. I won't be satisfied with that. I feel unsettled not being who I could be. And then from there, it's almost like the universe hears that. And then you get all of these opportunities to start to change. And that's what happened to me. I met somebody else several years after my first wife died, and she said to me, I love you, but I'm not going to do this alcohol addiction with you. And um, at first, I was really angry. And then I ended up in an AA meeting, and I haven't had a drink since. You could say that that's a pivot point. You could say that that's the moment when I turned things around. And it, it definitely was a moment. But I think that initial moment was that moment of my internal knowing as as justified as I might be in everything that I'm doing and everything that I feel, this woman isn't who I really am meant to be. And that is the pivot moment for anybody's life.
2: It's almost like you have to hit the rock, the proverbial rock bottom, but then you've got to find the steps back out. It's not like you just leap back up to the top again. There are steps along the journey of getting back to who you know you are which is an amazing thing just to have the awareness of. I think a lot of people don't have that awareness and that does keep them stuck. So kudos to you for for that. And hopefully people listening will spend the time, I think, with yourself to learn who you
0: are. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Seriously, really really appreciate it. Before we move to the next part is to add about forgiveness and to be able to forgive yourself, I think is an important part of taking those steps out.
1: Yes forgiveness and the rejection of your own personal shame. And I'm not sure that that work is ever totally done, but you have to commit yourself to the continuous application of that discipline. It's key for your survival and it's imperative for your success.
2: What else has been secrets to your success since?
1: I think my success is so part of getting sober is getting honest and First, you do that because that's what's required to just not be a person who's stuck in your addiction. And what I found is that over time, not right away, again, this climb out and then this journey to to wholeness is it's a slow process. But I found that I really liked living honestly. And I really liked being authentic. And even now I'm sitting on a podcast with you. I could consider who will hear my deepest, darkest demons, so to speak, right? Or I could just say, yeah, this is an integral part of who I am. And in my being honest and my being authentic, somebody's going to hear this that will be helped by this. I know that. That's why I do this. And I think my success is driven a lot by my desire to just say, I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to show up and do honest work. And I'm going to do what needs to be done and to just be really transparent in the process. People need that in their lives to get out of dark places. People also need that in business. Every single one of us that runs a business or owns a business or is starting one or even just a consumer, you want to deal with people that you can trust. And you can't trust people that are constantly hiding behind a veneer of themselves. You just can't. And so we all smell that, we all feel that, and we avoid it. And so I don't do that. And I think that's part of the reason that I'm successful. You might not like me. You might not agree with me. But you will know exactly who I am and where I'm coming from. And I think that, that's a key part of my success. as a foundational principle.
0: Um, can you share with us a bit more about the two businesses that you own and run? And why the chemical field?
1: Yeah, I actually started at, at TRI as the company's first lawyer. Uh, I was a, an attorney before I, I did anything like this. And I used to advise businesses and, and loved everything about entrepreneurship and again, the creativity behind that. So I came to this company and that's a, a long story and became its, its first lawyer and I got here and about two years into that, it turned out I knew the business well and I was kind of good at running a business. So I got promoted from general counsel to president and then I was promoted from president to CEO. My predecessor who founded the business was ready to retire. And so I ended up buying the business from him, CRI. I later made an acquisition of CBA and I just closed another acquisition actually a month ago. And so in January, um, I don't know when this podcast will air, but by the time it does probably, my company will have a new name, a new brand and all three entities will be in under one because I believe that it's much easier to have everybody have the same identity and be playing for the same team. And so that's how we'll do it. In sum, we supply the chemical and other raw materials for manufacturing across a variety of industries in the United States uh, and other markets. These products are made all over the world and we bring them into the US. And then I want you to think of one gallon of paint. A lot of our customers make paint there's multiple molecules that go into a gallon of paint and each one of those molecules have to be sourced from someplace and that's the job of my company. In addition, we also make some of those products at our plant in Chicago. And so companies will pay us to make their products for them, put their labels on them and then take them um, back to them to take to market. And I find it fascinating. I love knowing how things are made I see um, manufacturing for companies that make uh, paints and and other coatings, inks and dyes, cleaning solutions, laundry soap, and then even some of the most industrial applications, washes for big rig trucks. And I know how all of that is made, and and I love it. It's fascinating work.
0: Meg, is your business predominantly women?
1: Yeah, I'm one of the only wholly woman-owned. Uh, companies of my kind in my industry. This is what you would definitely call a male-dominated industry, and most of the um, industries or many of the industries we supply are as well. That said, I find that I'm well-received and well-respected in the industry, I'm in leadership uh, in many industry levels, and uh, I think well-respected and well-regarded by my male colleagues and female colleagues alike. I have a special place in my heart for female entrepreneurs, and I spend extra time mentoring them and encouraging them because I think there are some different challenges that present themselves without any disrespect to my male colleagues. There's just a different world sometimes for for the women I, I encounter. But yeah, it is kind of neat. I think we might be one of the largest, if not the largest, um, woman-owned and woman-run chemical distributors in the United States. It's amazing. And do
0: you find yourself hiring women
1: often? I have a lot of women working here and I have a lot of women in executive leadership. And I would say that this is how that happens. I don't know what the resumes look like for a lot of the people who work here. And frankly, uh, well over half the people who work here have worked here over 10 years. Um, we have a lot of longevity and we have a lot of loyalty. I tell people all the time, I have the greatest team on earth, and I and I mean that. But I'm not interested in where someone went to school or if a woman, for example, has had to take five years off to stay at home with her children. I'm probably not going to. That won't be a, a mark Uh, against her for me because I'm looking for that thing in people that you can't teach and I think a woman who's been at home running her household for five years probably knows a thing or two about organization and getting things done and, and being full of grit and resilience and so I tend to hire them and so I ask questions in interviews like tell me about your first job How old were you when you started working did you have a paper route have you ever mowed lawns for money like i want to know things about what makes people tick and and whether they have again that thing in them that that you can't teach i think a lot of women in any industry uh, and in business find themselves shut out um, because of breaks in resumes or maybe they didn't have the same educational opportunities or life stuff here, I just generally am not focused on that. Again, I don't read most of the resumes of the people who ever sit in front of me. I just know I got that. And I find that when you do that, you find incredibly talented people. And many of them at my organization happen to be women. But I find that same talent in men too. I just think that I tend to get women in leadership, probably because I'm not chasing the traditional things.
2: You said you also mentor female entrepreneurs, especially. So what's a piece of advice you would give someone who was, say, just starting out on their entrepreneurial journey and uh, they're struggling, they got the challenges. What, what advice would you give them?
1: I would say keep going. I always say that, and I know it sounds trite, but the opportunities to quit or be slowed down or be discouraged in the entrepreneurial journey are daily and multiple times a day. And if you don't have as an underlying posture within yourself this I'm going to keep going thrust engine, your business will not be successful, full stop. You can do anything else you wanna do, but if you can't keep yourself going in the midst of that and just commit every day to just keep going, then everything else that I could tell you to do will be worthless, it it won't matter. The second piece that I would say the second piece of advice is that i would be very cautious around the word no somebody tells you something's not possible or they tell you no or they tell you you can't or some derivative of the negative i personally am very cautious around that no is one person's opinion usually and if you just kind of know that and you think okay this one lender won't give me that loan That doesn't mean I'm not getting a loan. It means I'm not getting a loan from this person. And having a good relationship with the no's that are thrown at you is, I think, incredibly important. This ties back to that concept of doing a lot with very little and having that grit and that resourcefulness. All of that requires having a strong relationship to the word no. There's always a way. And I, I think really good entrepreneurs know that. And they might not know what that way is, but they know there's a way. And I would encourage them to keep following that gut sense.
0: It makes me think about as entrepreneurs, we're just used to getting our own way. Yes,
1: <laughs> it's, it's kind of a true. Kid that
0: just says <laughs> I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep
1: going.
2: Yes, persistence,
0: persistence.
2: It's not get your own way. It's make your own way. Like, yes. oh, you're telling me no? Okay, I'm going to go do it anyway. It's that type of attitude, I think that makes, defines a lot of entrepreneurs. It's like, oh, I'm going to figure out a way. Oh, I, I can't get the loan. Okay. I can bootstrap it or I'll figure, I'll figure out, a way. Cause there's yeah. just something in you that knows this has to happen and you have to make it happen. You have to believe in it like deep down and know that this is a solution that is just needed in the world. And mm-hmm. nothing's going to stop you if you truly believe that.
1: It's true. I, one of the regional honorees for entrepreneur of the year, And I'm at this awards ceremony and I'm listening to the other winners talk and I would say 75% of them started their business just bootstrapping it and working long nights alone and trying to convince funders or lenders or investors that what they had was something legitimate. Well over half, maybe closer to 80, 90% were in that situation and talked about it. You can't tell me that you have those kinds of people, 80 to 90 percent of people heard a lot of no's and they're standing here at what, what could be considered one of the high points of a career. You can't tell me that there isn't a relationship there to the way that they view the word no and the direct result of their success. So you're absolutely right. You have to have a, a grit that keeps you going past somebody's no.
2: I always like to think about all those people that said no to like people that make it to like mad success. Do they even
1: realize,
2: are they kicking themselves? Because I feel like they should be. Yes. I hope they are. I hope so. Say yes more, please people. Say yes, lenders, to those passionate entrepreneurs that have crazy ideas. Say yes, because sometimes it's incredible. And sometimes it's a failure and that's okay too, because We just fail fast and get on to the next thing, right? That's right. Tell us, tell us, what's your greatest achievement? What's the thing you're most proud of so far in your, in your career?
1: I have a lot of um, amazing achievements and um, I don't take any of them lightly or for granted. But my greatest achievement is my girls. I know that sounds like something you'd expect everybody to say or whatnot, but I really, truly feel that my journey to having a family and then the arrival of these two beautiful people into my life was hard fought. And there are days when I wouldn't say that <laughs> they're, they're both quite young. And so some days are easier than others, but I will tell you this, it, it's something to make success for yourself. And it's something to create a world where you're, a business world or or whatever you're creating around you, where you're really, really proud of it. It's another thing to create fulfillment and The difference between success and fulfillment is often subtle, but my children give me fulfillment. They also remind me of legacy, that what I do will be so much bigger and so much longer term than what I'm creating at at work and and what I'm creating in my business. And so um, I feel that. I I, I feel just honored and delighted to be their mom, and that's my greatest uh, achievement. And I say that honestly, too, because I think you can do both things. I think it's really, really important for people to understand that you can be so fulfilled and and have an amazing role as a parent and also have your children know that what delights you as a human being is also the creation and maintenance of your business, and you can do both things as long as you're intentional and really open and honest. My girls know that I do what I do at work and I create and I, I run my business because it makes me happy too it's good for them to see that and to know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. They're lucky girls because it is hard. It is very hard to be CEO of a business and, and you've got young girls too. I don't believe in the word balance. I don't believe there is such a thing, but what's your thoughts on how you manage it all? Let's not say balance. How do you manage it all as a mom and a CEO?
1: If I'm totally honest, the answer is not always very well. And I really want to be honest about that. I, I don't want to sit on your podcast and have a listener think that I've reached the pinnacle of, of balance or or whatever it is. Sometimes I'm doing a, a crappy job. My goal, my intention, and and what I think I do pretty well, majority of the time, is that I work really hard to be where my feet are. I'm a daily meditator, and so I have just thoughts about presence and and being where I am. And one of the things that I really strive to do as a person is to be exactly where I am when I'm there. So I try in talking to you to just be with you. And I try in talking to them to just be with them. Children can feel that. And if there's a parent listening to this podcast, that's worried about that time balance, because it isn't balanced. I have some quarters, everybody running a business knows that there's some quarters that are worse than others. I have some quarters where I'm home, not very much at all. And then maybe we get this week-long family vacation, and I can really just dwell in being with them. Or maybe I I don't get that, and I only have a half hour to have breakfast with them. But when I do, I sit in between them, and I look at them when they talk, and I'm present. I'm fully present. And I think that presence is the thing to strive for, not balance. Because if you're striving for balance, you won't reach that. And then you're just going to feel terrible about yourself all the time. But if you're striving for presence, you can do that most of the time. That's what we want. That's what our children want. And when people are present with us, then we feel seen. And I think that's the impetus and the the fostering of love, frankly, between, between all of us.
0: Meg, that's so profound. And it sounds simple, yet I don't think anyone we have spoken to over the four seasons of this podcast have ever put that balance is presence, that this is such an important concept. Thank you for sharing that. I'm thinking there's going to be a few light bulbs going off with listeners at the moment. It is a beautiful way to consider that and to go through the world.
1: If it was easy, you wouldn't have people like me spending time every single morning focusing on our breath, working on presence. But I do think that the pursuit of presence is far more likely to yield results than the pursuit of balance. That's my personal opinion. And so that's what I try to pursue. And it works. It works for me. I think it works for others too.
0: Can we switch gears attached towards the business side of things again? Yes. I, I understand this is all part of business. It's who you are in your business. I want to take it to the strategic level. You're about to rebrand yeah. three businesses into one, which of course also means cultures of each business merging. So there's a whole change management thing going on there next year. Um and Curious to hear from you, I see that as a type of launch and what Laura and I do in our business is that we help small businesses, solopreneurs launch their business or a new product to market. So I'd love to just have that conversation. What do you consider to be the most important target or what do you really need to get right with this launch?
1: So I have a business that has 30 years of reputation And I have acquired two other businesses of similar duration. So whenever you're in that position, you have to get right, not losing what you already have. And in many ways, that is a more difficult imperative than starting out and thinking, I'd be great if 10 people heard this message correctly and and being delighted when it's 15. But I have to get it right that we have the preservation of core parts of our identity. Because you have to remember that I can't go backwards. I have to maintain exactly where I'm at. So I I feel the pressure of that right now. I have to be very, very intentional about making sure that all of this market and reputation and the existing work we've poured into this 30, 60, 90 years combined isn't lost in this. And so I'm very, very mindful of that. This is another area though, where this is not my area of expertise. And so I've had to outsource this marketing and then trust that other people know better than me, which is super hard to do as a CEO <laughs> and as a <laughs> type A. I, I tell people that all the time, like, this is, this is hard for me, but it's an interesting part in my life, right? Because here I am, I've got this business baby and I'm saying, please don't hurt anything and help me take this to market. That said, I'm confident in them for reasons that we talked about earlier, that trust component, uh, the authenticity component. I know who they are, and I know that they know what I need, and they know me. But I think, yeah, that's the biggest thing I have to watch in in this particular launch. And then the next thing I have to do is make sure that it's clean. All of the things that you want when you're picking a new brand. It's going to become recognizable. It's going to adequately capture who we are and and what we're about, and I think that it does, but I won't know for sure until it hits the market, which will happen on January 1, wow. and that's sort of the moment of truth, right? You spent this year in this business. The preparation work for this has been a year of work. Mm-hmm. I've been excited about this. I'm like, yes, this is the right name. This is the right new name. This is the right new logo. This is the right colors. This is the right font. Who knew you had to pick font? Not my wheelhouse. You did. You did. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, okay, this is all right. But ultimately or January 1, I'm going to be waiting to see what happens because that'll be the ultimate test, right? you got to
2: test it in the market. Testing it in the mind doesn't matter. Testing it to your friends and family doesn't matter. They're not your customers, right? Yes. It's testing it in the market. That's really important. And that's the scariest part because by then it's all built. You can't rebuild the the building after that, right? It's, it's done. It's created. Yeah, but the good news is most logos have nothing at all to do with what the business does. Most games have nothing at all to do with what the business is. Starbucks does not sound anything like coffee. In fact, it's from a book. So that is not as important as your values, who you are, what you stand for, because that in the end, I believe truly is what keeps customers coming back. And when you've built a brand reputation, of course, it's unnerving to change any of that, but... You're still standing on your values. And I'm guessing the core values aren't
1: changing. That's still the same. Yeah, not at all. And in fact, I'm sort of a known quantity. People know what they're going to get with me. So I'm, I'm talking to you right now. I'm wearing a sweater and a pair of jeans and a pair of running shoes. I show up most places like that. I have a lot of customers that are very important people. And for the most part, they see me in a pair of jeans and a running shoes. And I'm going to roll up my sleeves and we're going to talk about what needs to happen. Some of them I meet in a suit. Uh, But it takes not very long for us to get to the crux of who we are and to have that conversation. And when people know who you are and what you are fundamentally about, they're going to know what your organization is about. It's so important that every CEO or business owner understands that everything trickles down from who we are and who we are can't be masked. People will figure it out eventually. So the values of your business better be the same as the values of you as a human being, because if they're not, that's going to fall apart. People can smell that all over the place. So will the values of this business change? Will the identity of this business change in that respect? No, not at all, because I'm going to be the same, but it's going to look different. And and I think that's OK, too.
0: Very exciting time for you. Very exciting. Congratulations. You mentioned that it had taken a year in the making. So that's a long runway, obviously a very big project. So it needs that length of runway. Can you talk into a bit of the preparation, not so much the details, but the importance of having that strategy of lining up your ducks in a row, so to speak, so that when launch day comes, you're ready?
1: Yeah, my first advice is to everybody listening is to hire this out. Even if your business is marketing, it's good to have a different brain other than your own, um, do this kind of stuff. First thing I had to do was pick a new name for my business. And I started this process before I had either one of the acquisitions complete. One of them I knew was almost done and would be coming on board. But the second one, I didn't really know. Uh, I knew there was a possibility, but it happened faster than I thought. So I knew that I had to pick a new name that was inclusive to what we were at the moment and the fact that we would potentially be growing and that we were growing. And so I hired a firm to help pick the name. That process took several months. I didn't know that. I didn't know how much research goes into that. I didn't know how much market intelligence, surveying customers, like all of that, I had no idea. Again, know what you know, know what you don't know, and, and what you don't know something you need to ask somebody who does to do it well for you. Once we have a new name, then I had to hire a firm that turned that into a logo, a marketing package. Laura, you kind of joke about the font, but again, it's part of the packet and the coloring. And I didn't know there was that many different kinds of green or yellow or, you you know what I mean? And so it takes a while. And then they're creating a brand strategy and then they're creating logos and drafts of of what ads might look like. And so that's the process in, in that. I tell people to hire that out because that's not my highest and best use for my business. I need people who paid to do that because that's where their creative talent lies. And if I'm doing that, then what am I not doing for my business, right? I need to do what I'm good at and, and, and be in my sweet spot. And then I need to find people who help do that. And so that's the overall summary. They, they created the timelines for me. This is what we're going to need from you next and when we're going to need it. And I simply followed directions and um, I'm better off for it, I think. Yeah.
2: How much did um, strategy play a role in, in all that preparation? Like how much time did you spend just strategizing on what you're doing and who your target market is and making sure everything's clear in your messaging and that? Cause I think that's the missing piece people don't get either starting new or rebranding or anything. They go immediately to, okay, I got a new logo, you know, I got to need a business name and a new logo. And they miss the piece about who their customer is and their targets and the strategy behind it. So did you spend a lot of time on that too? I'm curious.
1: Tons. And in fact, that work was done prior to even picking a name. The firm that helped us create the name talked to a number of our customers. They gave anonymous opportunities for people to tell them who we were. Uh, They had to wrap their arms around the identity of who we were in a current moment. And then they needed to come talk to me and all the members of my team about where we thought we were going. And there was a lot of work of just getting to know you before that could happen. Once they saw where I thought I was going and what I thought the strategic vision, it's my job to set the strategic vision of the company. Once I could say what that was, then you have to pick a name that that captures that as well, while not also abandoning what used to be. And that's harder work than, than you think.
2: Really hard work. Yeah. Then
1: when you get into all of the colors and all of that, I joke about the tediousness of that, but. Laura, this is your guys' wheelhouse, like, that says something about your strategy, too. That says something about where you're going and who you are. And that's why I'm saying, too, like, that part of it I didn't understand. That was the bulk of the conversation, the strategy, the identity, the messaging. The rest of it comes, once you have those things hammered down, then you're like, oh, that's the obvious choice for the logo, Right. But you you have to nail that all down first.
2: Exactly. That is exactly it. And that's where it becomes easy. And that's when marketing becomes easy because once you've got the strategy, your messaging, you know who you're talking to, what you're going to say, then the rest of it, like any any designer can pick up on that, take that information and create you beautiful ads and a beautiful logo and every other piece of identity you could possibly want, the perfect font because it all has meaning. There's always a meaning behind all of it, but the general public doesn't understand those and they don't need to, but the right target is going to connect immediately to it because it's going to have the feeling that they're going to want associated with it. So whether it's warmth, friendliness, or serious business, whatever your emotions, your values, all that comes through, through the font choice, through the colors, so I love it. I'm getting way too excited about this conversation because this is so my wheelhouse and what I get really excited and love to talk about all day long. Back to resilient entrepreneurs, back, back to that, yeah. you know, side <laughs> of the show. <laughs> so speaking of resilient entrepreneurs, let's wrap this up with, how do you think people become resilient?
1: As I was saying earlier in the show, I think part of it is learned without intention. When we have experiences in our life, and we take children, for example, like I think good, bad, or indifferent, I think that don't have it always very easy, become resilient through sort of what I call natural means, right? They have to become resilient. That is ingrained in us as human beings that are also animals on some level, right? With this desire to survive and to thrive, I think that builds resilience, I do think too, then, that outside of that, the thing that we can control and the thing that we can choose is our response to given situations. And I see it as two parts. Number one, to know exactly where you are, to know exactly what's happening, the truth about yourself, the truth about the situation, not the one you wish you could tell your friends, not the one that you will tell your mother, the, the truth about who you are when you go to bed at night, knowing that and standing really deeply in that. When you know that, then you can move in response to whatever challenges are happening. And your choice to move in any direction with intention is your resilience. It's not any more complicated than that. Doesn't mean you have to do it well. It's the fact that you wanted to do it in the first place. That is what makes you resilient. You don't have to say, I don't wanna live like this anymore and then arrive at a perfect place. And if you get to the perfect place, then you were resilient. If you say, I don't like where I am, I know where I am, and I want something different, your resilience is the fact that you decided to do something different. You get to fumble the ball along the way. But choosing to do better for yourself is your resilience. And I think you can develop that. But it requires a lot of self-honesty and then the willingness to to not do it perfectly initially, just the desire to do it.
2: That's great. Perfect summary of this entire conversation about the authenticity about the really being honest, about living in your values and standing upon them as an entrepreneur and as a human being, right? As a mother, as all these different facets of our life, because we are so much more than just what we do. And just really appreciate this entire conversation for all of that and so much more. Thank you so much. You are inspiring many more to live their authentic, real, genuine, honest, brutally honest selves, because that's who we all need to show up as and that's what keeps us resilient that's what keeps us going it keeps all of us from not quitting being real being honest and just telling our story because when you tell your story you give permission for everybody else to as well and that's what i love so that's why we're so grateful for you sharing your deep very deep very serious stories but also your light and your passion and your joy we appreciate all of it thank you so much meg this is amazing conversation
1: thank you for having me it was really good to talk to you